Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't gotten to meet you yet, uh, my name is Murray Nickel. I am uh, the assistant pastor here at Redeemer. Um, Fritz, both Fritz and Shanna are on vacation this next week, and so it's just me. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm thankful for another chance to uh, bring God's word before us this morning. Um, well, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 11. Right at the end of it, we're going to be picking up in verse 55, where, we, where Fritz left, left off last week. Um, you know, over the last few weeks, uh, the last several weeks, really, uh, we've been kind of slowly walking and soaking in uh, John 11, right? And Jesus is raising of Lazarus from the dead. And what we've seen is in, is in the face of all the sad things of this world, sickness, sorrow, sin, even death, like James talked about this morning with that wonderful picture of that painting, that Jesus has a plan. He had a plan when he delayed after hearing of Lazarus' sickness. He had a plan when he spoke with Martha in the middle of her frustration, in the middle of her confusion. He had a plan when when he wept with Mary in her sorrow. And he had a plan when he walked up to Lazarus' tomb. And that was, and still is, to make all sad things untrue, right? And and to offer us both life, yes, eternally, but also real and true life right now in the present. And then all throughout John, you know, we've been in John for a while now, and all throughout John, what we've seen over and over again is that there is a specific point of this gospel. And that is, John says at the end of his gospel, that you may believe in Jesus, that that he is the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name, right? That idea of his name being who Jesus is in his fullness, that you might have a life that is found in, rooted in, shaped by the, the reality of who Jesus is. And I think that in this text this morning, we see, that we see this kind of contrasting picture of, of Mary and of Judas. And, and in this, John is giving us a glorious picture of what that living in Jesus, in his name, what that looks like. Living in him as the one who promises that all sad things will come untrue. So uh, follow along uh, as I read John 11, we'll start in verse 55, and we'll go through verse 11 of chapter 12. John writes, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. 
and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let me pray for us as we come to God's word. Father, your word is good. It is true. It is life. We ask, God, that as we come to your word now, that you would enliven our faith. God, that we would see Jesus, that we would behold his beauty, that our hearts would even be changed this morning. We ask that you would move among us now by your spirit, and we ask it only in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, many of you are likely familiar uh, with the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I know that it's not Christmas time, um, but if you aren't, uh, it's a great movie. You should watch it. Um, and if you aren't, let me, let me give you a little bit of the story. The movie follows the story of George Bailey and his life in a small town in upstate New York named uh, Bedford Falls. As the movie starts off, we learn that George at one time was a young man with big dreams. He wanted to travel the world. He offered to lasso the moon, in my favorite scene, lasso the moon for his sweetheart Mary. But as the story goes on, what we find is that George's life has proven more disappointment than dreamy. He had to place his dreams on hold when his father died in order to run the small family building and loan business. He gave his tuition money that was intended for him to his younger brother that his brother might go off and study. He and his wife had to surrender their honeymoon savings when the Great Depression hit their small town in order to just keep the family business afloat. And at the climax of the film, George is at the end of his rope. He's bankrupt. The, building's on the, ver the, the building and loan company is on the verge of collapse. He's on the verge of imprisonment because of uh, discrepancies in the business accounts. George is caught in this spiral of sorrow and disappointment, and he becomes convinced that everyone would be better off without him. And yet, in a moment, everything changes for George. And that moment is when Clarence, George's guardian angel, shows up in response to the prayers of George's friends and family. And, and Clarence shows George, it kind of reframes George's life, showing him how much more meaningful his life is than he could possibly imagine. And George is overcome by gratefulness with this reframed life. And he rushes home to find a house full of celebration, of laughter, of feasting. And as the credits roll on It's a Wonderful Life, the picture that we're left with, the taste that we're left with, is this picture of a man whose life seemed all but over, now feasting with those he loves. A picture of, of sad things coming untrue, right? In, in a sense, a picture of new living, new life. And over the last few weeks, we've, we've kind of been soaking in a similar story of this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, uh, racked by disappointment and grief, and yet whose lives were changed in an instant. And they were changed when not a guardian angel showed up, but when Jesus himself, the Son of God, showed up on the scene. And he didn't just reframe a life, he raised a life from the dead. And in our passage this morning, I think we kind of are seeing the credits roll on John 11. 
And as the credits roll, John, John gives us a picture of this new living in Jesus. And it's a picture of a feast, a feast shared among friends and this restored family living new life in Jesus, in his presence. And it's the same, my, my, my suggestion this morning is that it's the same kind of life that Jesus invites you into. So what does life, what is life in Jesus, what does living in Jesus look like? I think the first thing that we see is that to live in Jesus is to delight in Jesus. It's to delight in Jesus. Right at the end of uh, John 11, John kind of sets the stage, right? Saying that the Passover was at hand, this, uh, this celebration each year where, the, where Jewish people would flock to Jerusalem to celebrate God passing over uh, those who had the blood of the lamb on their door in the Exodus. And what we find is that as this Passover is, is approaching, the hostility that Jesus' miracle at the tomb had raised earlier in John 11 has only heightened, right? The plot that Fritz talked about last week, where, where, the, where the religious leaders are plotting in secret that they're going to kill Jesus, that plot has now gone public, Right, verse 57 tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given, order that, given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, that, that they should be notified so that they could arrest him, so that they could kill him. Right, the, the, the secret plot is now public. The word is out. And yet, it's right in the middle of that hostility, that danger, that we're offered this startling, unexpected picture of living in Jesus. And far from a picture of sadness, far from a picture of, of hostility, it's a picture of feasting and delight. So what do we see about delighting in Jesus? Three things. And I promise I'll move through them as quickly as I can. <laughs> the source of delight, the object of delight, and the effect of delight. The source, the object, and the effect. So the source of delight, you know, verse, verse 1 to 2 of John 12, right? Despite the hostility, Jesus, it says, therefore came to Bethany, right? Jesus, despite the hostility, knew that the Father's will was that he go to Jerusalem one last time. So Jesus, is, Jesus heads to Passover, and he stops over in his favorite town with his favorite people, with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom he loved. Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, and so we're told that unsurprisingly, a dinner is given in Jesus' honor. Again, it's a startling contrast to what we just read in verses 55 to 57. It's, it's, we should be confused as to why no one here seems worried. I mean, this was ground zero of the final straw for Jesus. Surely these dinner guests had heard the rumblings around their town, surrounding this family. And yet the room is filled not with nervous whispers. It's filled with delight, with joy, with feasting, with celebration. It, it, it's, a, it's a picture of security and safety. And, and it's so secure and safe in that place with Jesus that we actually see in, in Martha and Lazarus just a little hint that, that these are two people that are free to be exactly themselves. Right, Martha doing exactly what we would expect Martha to be doing, serving practically, but no longer with bitterness or anxiety or frustration with what others are or are not doing, but with joy. Lazarus, free to lay, free to recline, not in a grave, 
but at a table feasting with Jesus. The one who promises all sad things will come untrue. And I think, I think that's the first thing we see about delighting in Jesus, is that the source of delight in Jesus is security with Jesus. It's this picture of total security with who Jesus is, even in the midst of hostility. But it's not only Lazarus and Martha who are freed to be exactly who they are meant to be, but also Mary. Right, the first half of verse three, we see the second thing about delight in Jesus, the object of delight. You can imagine, if, if you will, you can imagine the laughter, the, the joy, the, the stories being told around the table in, this, in the secure presence of Jesus. You can imagine those laying around, uh, asking Lazarus what it was like to wake up in that tomb, asking how well could you breathe through all those grave clothes, laughing about how long it took to unwind him. And then in verse 3, you can almost hear the record scratch as conversation comes to a screeching halt when Mary enters the room. Carrying, John says, a pound, it's about, it would be about 11 fluid ounces of this perfume that's made from pure nard. Uh, this was a wildly um, limited perfume um, because as I found out this week, Nard is an extract that comes from this plant that only grows in one place naturally, and that's in the Himalayan mountains. And so a pound of this perfume made from the extract of this plant from the Himalayas in Palestine would be incredibly rare. And not only was it rare, but it was wildly expensive. Right? If, if we look down, John even tells us through the mouth of Judas exactly how much this perfume is worth. 300 denarii, which was about a year's wage for the average or maybe even above, just slightly above average laborer. I mean, today we are, we are talking about tens of thousands of dollars. It is an extravagant gift that Mary is bringing into the room. And, Mary, and yet Mary is so overwhelmed with delight in who Jesus is that she takes it and she pours it out on him pours it out on his feet, pours out this prized, rare, extravagant perfume on his feet. But not only does she, does she give away what she possesses, but she gives away her position. Right? Because what John says next is maybe even more startling. As this perfume is dripping down the feet of Jesus, as everyone in the room is looking on with surprise, with shock, probably even some horror, with embarrassment, Mary steps down from her position as host of this honored guest and she steps into the place of the servant, right? To, for, to deal with the feet of someone in this time was not only reserved for servants, it was often reserved for non-Jewish servants because it was so debasing. It was so humiliating. But Mary doesn't care. She stoops down. She unbinds her hair which was something no self-respecting Jewish woman at this time would do. It said something about you if you walked around with your hair down. And she throws herself at his feet, kind of like she did in John 11, but, th but this time no longer out of sorrow, but out of delight. And she wipes his feet with her hair. I, even, even talking about that picture makes me uncomfortable, imagining that scene. Why does Mary do that? Because what Mary had come to see was that there was nothing more worthy of her delight than the worth of Jesus. 
not what she possessed, not how she would be perceived by the others in the room. It was the worth of Jesus. See, the object of delight in Jesus, I think we see, is is the surpassing worth of Jesus. it's, It's a worth that frees us from, from the things we possess, from the perceptions we cling to, it frees us because he's better. He's better than it all. And, and what happens? What happens when Mary delights in the worth of Jesus? The end of verse three, where we see the effect of delight. John says, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. In other words, delight in Jesus produces an aroma that permeates everything. It's really, honestly, I can't help but continue to go back to John 11 because I think it's a really beautiful reversal of the scene at Lazarus' tomb. When Jesus said to take away the stone, what did Martha say? Oh, but Lord, there will be a stench. He's been dead. He's been dead several days. And now the fear of that stench of death has been replaced with the fragrance of total and true delight in Jesus. Flowing out of a total security with Jesus and a delight that's being placed in the surpassing worth of Jesus. And it it so fills the room that that it becomes impossible to miss. It reminds me of like, it reminds me of of like when I go to a bonfire with people and I come home and it's like I cannot get the smell out of my clothes for days, right? Just it permeates into everything. So what is life in Jesus, what does living in Jesus look like? It looks like a life of delight in Jesus. So this, this kind of delight, it reminds me of, of what it was like uh, to take Addie, my wife, to meet some of my family for the first time. Uh, we had been dating for a while. Uh, we were moving towards engagement, and she hadn't met any of my family. And we couldn't swing the long drive from St. Louis uh, to Boone, North Carolina. So instead, we made a plan to meet some of my family in Nashville in the middle uh, for a weekend together. And had a great weekend. They all loved Addie. They all spoke really highly of Addie. Uh, But one conversation in particular sticks out after that trip above the rest. Um, I remember my mom saying to me when I was talking to her about the the weekend, I remember her saying, you know, Murray, you seem so at ease with Addie. She said, in fact, Murray, sometimes, like, it feels like seeing you with Addie feels like you're more yourself than I've seen you be in a long time. See, my mom didn't really know Addie yet, but what she could see is the delight that this person, who this person was, produced in me. This freedom to be myself, this freedom, uh, this delight, this joy flowing out of security with Addie. And, And what it did, it created this aroma on me that was impossible to miss. And and Addie's great, but that delight that I feel in Addie. Is, is, is only a glimmer, is only a glimmer of the delight that we see in Mary. And it's only a glimmer of the delight that who Jesus is produces in you, his people. Producing an aroma of Jesus to those around you. So why do we struggle with it? Because if we're honest, life does not always feel like delighting in Jesus. I think part of it, part of it is that we... we we get it backwards. We turn delight into only duty. And when we don't feel delight, we start to beat ourselves over the head with the command to delight, to do it. And I think what John wants us to see is that 
Delighting in Jesus is not so much something that we do. It is something that Jesus does in us. Cultivating in us a life of security and rest with him. Even in the middle of circumstances that seem hostile and dangerous. A life where I'm no longer ruled by by the things I possess. Where I'm no longer ruled by what other people think of me. But where I'm free to lay those things down because I've found something so much better. And it's a life that, that when, when Jesus cultivates that life in you, his people, what it does is it fills workplaces, schools, homes, churches with the aroma of Jesus that actually invites others into that same kind of life. So John shows us living in Jesus is to delight in Jesus. Secondly, John shows us in this picture that, that to live in Jesus is to be defended by Jesus. Look at verse 4. The aroma of Mary's uh, extravagant, sacrificial delight, right? It filled the room, but it was not a pleasing smell to everyone. Right? John says that it was Judas who broke the stunned, probably even embarrassed silence. Uh, he does so with an accusation, right? He doesn't say her name, but, but it is an accusation. He may as well have been saying, how dare she, Jesus? How dare she be so wasteful? That's a lot of money. Jesus, doesn't she know how many people we passed on the way into town? How much good all of this money could have done for them? On the surface, can we just be honest that that's a really reasonable question? Uh, it's, it's really pragmatic and practical. I mean, we, we get it, don't we? It makes a lot of sense to us. And I, like, when we read, like I said, we read this, this story and we see this picture of Mary and it makes us uncomfortable. It, it doesn't seem like something done decently and in good order. It, it seems pretty impulsive, maybe even reckless. And Judas, I don't think, was alone in that feeling. In fact, in both Matthew and Mark, who tell the same story, um, they tell us in their account that it, that it was m- more than just Judas in the room who, who felt indignant at this act. And yet it was Judas who speaks up here. Um, I, w- I was at a training conference uh, for youth workers at the end of January, um, down in Nashville. I just realized I'm talking about Nashville twice in this sermon. Um, one of my favorite seminars that week uh, was led by this marriage and family therapist um, named Megan Croft. And in her seminar, she uh, said this thing that I've been chewing on uh, ever since. She said, emotions are data that teach us. Often emotions are data that are teaching us about places we need to grow. In other words, emotions are worth paying attention to and learning from because they're often symptoms of a deeper and truer reality. So what was hiding behind Judas' response here? This this pretense of righteous indignation, what was hiding behind that? It was a self-defending heart. See, John tells us in verse 6 that that Judas was uh, the uh, treasurer in the band of the disciples. Basically, when when people gave money to Jesus, to his disciples, for their ministry, it would go into this community bag, this community pot of money, and it was Judas who was responsible for the disbursement of these funds. He was probably really good with numbers, and so it was Judas who had the position of of, uh, taking care of this money, and yet it was also Judas who took from that bag. And so when Judas sees this perfume show up in the room walking towards Jesus, you can almost feel the dollar signs lighting up in Judas's eyes. 
right? You can almost feel himself like kind of perk up like, wow, that's going to be under my control. And when that perfume was poured out, who did it threaten? It threatened Judas. It threatened Judas. And so for all his talk of the poor, for all his pretense of righteous indignation at Mary's act, who was Judas really defending? He was defending himself. He was defending his position and his access. And that need to self-defend came at the expense of one person in the room. Came at the expense of Mary. He never said her name, but he didn't have to, did he? Have you ever walked into a room to find, to, and you just know that people are talking about you? It's a terrible feeling. Same is true here. The finger was pointed at Mary, regardless of if he said her name. And who defends Mary? Jesus defends Mary. You know, I had three conversations this week about this text. Uh, I had a conversation on Wednesday with Fritz and Shanna, conversation Wednesday evening with Addie, and I had a conversation on Thursday with Glenda and Howard Kimball and Fritz when we met with them. And, and in each of those meetings, I asked that question that Fritz has talked about asking, of what's the most beautiful thing you see about Jesus in this text? And do you know what my sisters in Jesus, Shanna, Addie, and Glenda, all mentioned? This verse. Jesus defending Mary. Verse 7, Jesus tells Judas, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Uh, Commentators are all over the place on, on what Jesus means by this. The best I can tell is that Jesus is looking at Judas and he's saying, Judas, leave it. Leave her alone. What she did is way bigger than what you realize, and it's bigger than what she realized. She's preparing me for something. She's preparing me for what is to come. In other words, Jesus looks straight through all of Judas's self-defending, posturing, and pretense, and he says, Judas, you've missed it. Mary gets it, whether she even knows it fully or not. To live in Jesus, friends, is to be defended by Jesus. And that defense is eternally greater and lasting than any amount of righteous pretense, righteous posturing. What is that defense? It's what Jesus hints at in this verse. It's his death. See, while Judas could only defend himself by offering the other on the altar for the sake of his position and access, the defense of Jesus is one in which Jesus defends the other by offering himself on the altar for our position and access to God. So what does this mean for us? Brothers and sisters, to live in Jesus, living in Jesus means you can stop defending yourself. You don't have to hide the nature of your heart behind righteous pretense and posturing because your defense has already been eternally secured. And in the face of the accuser, Jesus says exactly what he said to Judas. Leave them alone. Look at my death. And I just, I wonder how would our lives, how would the church look if we lived in Christ's defense? What walls of self-defense might, might we be willing to bring down with our brothers and sisters, with our neighbors, if we really believe that our lives are eternally defended for all time before the Father, what corners of our, of our hearts might we 
finally let someone speak some truth and life into? How how might we be freed to love our enemies if we really believed that our defense is Jesus, if, if that reality sunk into our bones? See, that is the kind of life that Jesus offers you. It's a life of delight in him, but it's also a life in which you don't have to defend yourself because he defends you as the one who put himself on the altar for your sake. So to live in Jesus, it means that, it means that we're eternally defended by Jesus. It means we delight in Jesus. And finally, we see that to live in Jesus means that our lives in this world right now will be defined by Jesus. So like George Bailey's house at the end of It's a Wonderful Life, uh, like that house was swarmed with people coming to see a life restored, a life reframed, uh, we see in verse 9 that the word has spread that Jesus is back in Bethany. And the crowds begin to swarm in, yes, to catch a glimpse of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead. If I were to ask you, what do you know about Lazarus? Could you tell me one thing that Lazarus did? No. All we know about Lazarus, this one whose whose resurrection was the final straw for the Pharisees and the the chief priests, all we know about Lazarus is is what brackets both sides of this passage at the beginning and at the end. He whom Jesus had raised from the dead. See, the defining feature of Lazarus' life had become not what Lazarus had done, not his achievement, not his work, but the life-creating power and love of Jesus on display in Lazarus. And that defining reality we read in verse 10 and 11, it produced two responses, right? Kind of like Mary's perfume. The chief priests and Pharisees, they hated Lazarus for it. And so he got put on the hit list along with Jesus because on account of him, many were going away and believing in Jesus. You see, the life-defining power and love of Jesus produced an aroma in Lazarus. And it was an aroma just as strong as the aroma of Mary's perfume in that room. To Judas, to the chief priests, to other self-defenders, it was and is the aroma of death. But to others, the life of Lazarus, and can I say your life, will become a sweet perfume that draws people with Mary to the feet of Jesus. See, that is the life that Jesus holds out to you, friends, a life where where you are wrapped up with Lazarus, with Mary, with Martha, wholly in who Jesus is, not in who you are, not in your work, not in your children, not in your marriage, not in your Presbyterianism, as good as it is, but in Jesus Because Jesus is your delight. Jesus is your defense. And your life has taken on a new defining reality in Jesus. The one who is worth giving up everything for. And and so as we close, we might be asking, okay, that sounds great. But where do I start? Where Where does that delighting heart that heart that seems to be only for Jesus, that heart that rests safely and honestly in his defense, 
that heart that's not afraid to be identified and defined by his work rather than my own, where does that kind of a heart come from? And I think like it did for Mary, like it did for Martha, like it did for Lazarus, I think, it, I think it begins by understanding the heart of Jesus for you. What do I mean? One final story. Um, Addie and I, uh, a week or so ago, uh, were up in Ohio, and we spent a night with her mom and stepdad, and we watched a, a documentary um, about this tragic eruption that you may have heard of, of a volcano off the coast of New Zealand. This was in 2019. Um, it tragically erupted while, while two tour groups were visiting the side of the volcano. Um, and this documentary was told from the perspective of, of several of the survivors, um, two of which were a newlywed couple uh, named Matt and Lauren Ure, uh, and they were on their honeymoon. And because of their proximity to the volcano when it erupted, both Matt and Lauren uh, suffered really severe burns over a majority of their body. Um, and right near the end of the documentary, uh, Matt and Lauren are sharing the story of their lives since this tragedy. Um, they, they talk about the, the surgery, the countless surgeries they've undergone, the, the way the burns have limited their dexterity, um, the, 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 the health challenges that uh, inhaling the, the ash has caused. And at one point, Matt holds up his arm to reveal this ring of, of perfectly unscathed skin around his wrist. And he explains that it was a mark left by the hand of his wife clinging on to him during the eruption. And even as he tells it, Lauren holds her hand to show how her hand fits in that place. And as they tell that piece of the story, as Lauren grabs his hand, um, you can actually see a smile wash over, wash over his face as he delights over the permanent mark of love that he now carries. Friends, Living into Jesus, into who Jesus is, it does not begin with your delight in Jesus. It begins with understanding Jesus' delight in you. That, that for you to be defined by Jesus meant that Jesus would forever have to be defined and marked by you. To go to the cross and to bear the marks of your sin so that all your sadness, all your sin could come untrue. And so can I suggest that, that the extent to, that you are able to come to see the smile of Jesus when he looks at the marks he now bears before the Father for all eternity on your behalf, when he looks at those marks he bears for you, that he smiles, the extent to which you understand that is the extent to which you're going to find your life wrapped up in delighting in him, in his defense, and in, his, in, in being defined by and with him. And it is, it is going to produce a beautiful aroma in you as you go out to serve him in this world. Let's pray. Father, you are good. And we give you great thanks for your son. God, I ask that, that as we go out from here, Lord, that you would fill us, as Paul writes, with, with an understanding of the height and depth and breadth of the love of Jesus for his people. God, that it might change us, that our, we might find our lives more and more defined by the reality that we are forever defended by Jesus. 
And that, God, you would use us among our neighbors, among our schools, our workplaces, that you would produce in us the aroma of Jesus, that others might come and find life with you as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.